Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, I think by now folks know the name Graham James. Deservedly infamous. Uh, although, uh, I think it's un- unfortunate to note that, that he is not currently behind bars. We come up the heels of Larry Nasser in the U.S., he was going to die in jail for victimizing all the young people he did. It certainly underscores the differences uh, between our two systems. Because there were those who were victimized by Graham James, for whom it really is a life sentence. And we know some of these stories. We know about Theo Fleury and Sheldon Kennedy, these high-profile athletes and what they went through. And there's a lot of others that have similar stories. Uh, and one of them is Greg Gilhooley, who's uh, written a book uh, about his, his life growing up, but... Uh, uh, a life as a youngster that revolves again around Graham James. The book is called I Am Nobody, Confronting the Sexually Abusive Coach Who Stole My Life. Greg, thanks for coming in here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. The process of, of writing this book, I, I would imagine, is therapeutic at some level, but certainly I would also imagine very, very difficult. The process was very difficult. I didn't set out to write a book. Uh, I found over time that the the book uh, was a, a form of therapy, but more to the point, it was something that forced me to stay on the path uh, of recovery. I couldn't abandon my own recovery because I had something tangible out there to, to keep me on task. But when you talk about the sexual assault itself, it was horrible, horrific to have to go back and actually think about it because when it was happening, I could let my mind go to any number of places. When I was going to write about it, I had to think about it. It's interesting because you get a sense through reading the book that you're, I mean, you're, you're obviously haunted by what happened to you, but there, there seems to be a, a guilt, a sense of guilt that you carry with you. Well, I think that's right. And you have to remember that, well, look, this is radio. I, I am a physical giant of a human being. I'm, I'm yes, six, I seven, and I, I would have been in shape back then as an athlete. I'm, Literally, with one punch, I could have taken Graham out. He never would have abused anyone ever again. I could have come forward with my story had I not physically hurt him. Anything that happened after me is, in my mind, my responsibility. I didn't stop him when I had the chance. Now, look, I get intellectually the grooming process and how that works. I understand how they get at us, these abusers, but I don't live that reality. I feel responsible for anything that came after me. Well, I mean, I can understand that. Obviously, you're, you're a victim here. You were, you were a child, right? And, I mean, you, you get that side of it. I do and I don't. I, I, I can say all the right things. I've been in therapy for years. I have good days when I can absolutely crystallize the fact that there's a difference between who I am today and who I was back then. I look at the pictures of who I was back then. But I, I'm still the same me with the same brain, with the same thoughts. And... 
it still to this day doesn't make sense how he got to me. I mean, I was a successful athlete. I was a phenomenal student, even better in the classroom than on, on the rink, in the rink. And he still got to me, and I still fundamentally don't understand how it happened. So you were 14 when you first met him? Met Graham at 14. Uh, it's not like he instantly started abusing me, though, right? He, right. He uh, set things up so that he would become my mentor. We would meet. He got to know more and more and more about me. And then months later, he broke the physical barrier. You were a goalie. Well, I are a goalie. Were. <laughs> but by the way, I mean, just as an aside, is, is the sport itself tainted for you? Can you separate how you feel about hockey from what, what you went through? I have a love-hate relationship with the game, and it's only recently as an adult in the past decade that I've fallen back in love with the game. It's impossible to love hockey the way I did before Graham, but at the same time, as a, as a coach of kids, I was able to see the game through their eyes and, and see the game as magical to them, and that reminded me of the magical place it once held in my life. Right, and it's interesting. I mean, you, you call him Graham. You didn't, right? It's not Mr. James or Graham James or that guy. No, and, and I've been encouraged to think of him as Mr. Mr. James or the accused or the, yeah. the convicted, but he's always going to be Graham to me. So you're a 14-year-old. You're, you're kind of um, at that point in your young hockey career where you're sort of jumping to that next level, kind of an elite athlete or, or near elite. And so here's a guy, you encounter him, and he was pretty important. He was a hockey god back in Winnipeg at that time. and Everyone knew him, and he was seen as a progressive innovator of hockey systems in a world that uh, didn't include a lot of educated people at that time. And Graham presented himself as a, a highly educated university graduate, and he was a substitute teacher in the school system at the same time. As someone who could make great things happen for you. Absolutely. And someone who understood you. This is the most troubling aspect of it, because... Graham presented himself as a scholar-athlete and quickly sussed out the fact that I didn't want to proceed through the major junior route. I wanted to keep open the opportunity of playing college hockey in the U.S. I believed that anyone could succeed as a hockey player and anyone could succeed in the classroom, that it only mattered if you could do both. Um, both had come easy to me, and I thought anyone could do anything, and, and I wanted to succeed at both. And Graham quickly figured out that he could present himself as someone who had been both and could right. make me into both. And I mean, in terms of the athletics, he did, right? He did. He, he, he helped. He certainly put efforts towards helping me. I, I don't think anyone would objectively look at the situation from afar now and say that he in any way helped. But he certainly no, no. presented to me that he was helping. Right. Uh, because it, we, we, we see these echoes. We mentioned, you know, mentioned Larry Nasser off the top, Jerry Sandusky. The, the story is very similar, isn't it? The, the building of that trust. Look, these people are very good at what they do. You don't get to be a serial sexual predator without being good or you'd be caught the first time. Right. So a person like Graham is, is no dummy. And the fundamental element of what he is after, first and foremost, is winning over the trust of the victim. And so he became the most important person in my life and led me to believe that he was the only person I could trust. So this was prior to uh, Theo Fleury and, and Sheldon Kennedy. He went on to coach junior. This was after you had correct. He was a, he was a local minor hockey coach in Winnipeg, and then a, a junior hockey coach in Winnipeg. I mean, if you talk to to others, is it is it possible to pinpoint 
when this all began or who his first victim was? Well, we know because Graham admitted while in jail uh, after the uh, conviction on the, the charges with respect to Sheldon Kennedy, another individual from the early 70s, even before me, came forward. It wasn't an extended relationship, and I use the word relationship with some reluctance, but yeah. uh, I'm the first who has come forward, but I have no reason to believe that he wasn't doing this before me. I mean, Graham is someone who is wired differently, and there's no reason to believe he operated on a light switch when he met me. Right. He, he seemed to, to know what he was doing by that point. That's right. Of, the right. interesting thing, I, when I look back at it rationally, I'm, I'm now a lawyer, I, I can see how he was developing his pattern and figuring out how he could hide and how he could win over trust and take the, the, the path that he took with me, with others. So you got to a point where you were able to, to go off to university to play hockey. I was recruited by any number of hockey programs, but in the end, I, I went to Princeton University. But never, never played varsity there. Right. Because things got, I mean, you got away from Graham James, but in a way, your life got a lot more difficult. The fundamental thing about child sexual abuse is that it isn't about the sex. It's about the mind control that goes on. And the problem for me and for other people who have been victimized by abusers is coming out of the sexual abuse, I believed that I was nobody at all, not worthy of, of living. And though I could physically escape my abuser, I found something more horrific, and that's that I'd become my own worst abuser. It was very uh, visible, very high profile, what Theo Fleury went through, uh, his his struggles with addiction uh, through his time in the NHL. And at the point, we didn't quite know why or what he was dealing with. We we now know. Yeah. Uh, and just that that those feelings of you know lacking that that self worth or feeling as though you're you're less than than human or that you're to blame or you just want to escape at all. Yep. Takes you to a very dark place, doesn't it? Takes you to a very dark place. I didn't want to uh, I didn't want to live and so anytime I was presenting outwardly any form of what appeared to others as success, I felt that I was a fraud. And so I had to do whatever I could to to change opinions and, and so through any sense of self sabotage to the outward world uh, would would destroy myself. Behind closed doors I was doing even worse things to myself, cutting, binging, abusing substances, whatever. And the interesting thing is uh, we, we know of uh, Theo's struggles and we know of Sheldon's struggles, and these guys are survivors, right? Yeah. The, the, the problem back then was that people were asking, what's wrong with these guys? What's, what's wrong with them? Why, why is Theo acting out? Why is you know, Sheldon having to go to rehab again and again and again? And in Sheldon's case, it was particularly troubling because the person they kept sending him back to for guidance, the person they believed who could look after Sheldon and set him straight was Graham. Well, let's, uh, let's take a break here. We'll come back and we'll continue that conversation and then to how long it took to, to finally recognize all of this and bring Graham James to justice and whether he really truly has been brought to justice. Uh, Greg Yulhuli is our guest. The book is called I Am Nobody, Confronting the Sexually Abusive Coach Who Stole My Life. We're back with more right after this. Right, we're back with uh, Greg Yulhuli speaking about his book, I Am Nobody, Confronting the Sexually Abusive Coach Who Stole My Life, uh, that being Graham James. Uh, and Greg, we're talking about Graham James is perhaps still under some parole, probation conditions, but he is not behind bars, is he? He's not behind bars. He walks freely amongst us today, which is, is ridiculous. 
It is. Um, what's also, I'm, I'm sure, difficult for you to, to deal with is the fact that he hasn't really been held accountable for what happened to you. There was, uh, I, I guess it would have, was a plea deal. He agreed to plead guilty to abusing other athletes, but the, the charges pertaining to you were stayed. Correct. What, what does that mean to you? Well, one time it meant a lot, and now I like to say that it means nothing, but I also think that that's a bit of a lie. Uh, I'm a, a lawyer, so the lawyer in me understands that the Crown couldn't take Graham to trial. The Crown was effectively beholden to whatever Graham was going to admit to or not because there were no witnesses to what it is Graham did. It was not like there was an overlapping uh, person walking down the halls or sharing the room or, or whatever. Right. So if Graham wasn't going to admit, you, you can't prove historical sexual assault. So the lawyer in me gets it. The The victim in me is just unbelievably upset when it happened and it's you know, five years down the road I'm, I'm dealing with it but I'm not happy were you prepared to, to testify I was I like to think that the book is a, a form of testimony that I was denied yeah. the opportunity to give in court but at the same time I, I'm a big talker I mean I still showed up in court even though I became nobody in the judicial process when the charges were stayed. I showed up for the sentencing hearing, not a trial. Graham's never gone to trial and have had his story you know, put to the test. Um, I made a point of showing up at the, uh, the sentencing hearing, and I made a point of telling the bailiffs and the security officers in the courtroom that I wanted to look Graham in the eye and just show him that I was still around and I, I hadn't been gone away. And w when Graham was ushered back into the courtroom in one instance, he was looking at the floor walking towards me. I didn't have to see his face. I just crumbled. And, and so I like to say that I would testify in court against Graham, but yeah. who knows? Well, you must have saw during the Larry Nassar trial, the father who asked for a few minutes alone and then... You know, we, we all know what right? we're supposed to say when that happens, right? We're all supposed to say that respect the law, respect the court, whatever. Yeah. But the father did what any father would do in that circumstance. When did your own parents become aware of all this? Well, I couldn't tell anyone uh, for a long time, and I certainly couldn't tell my father while he was alive or it literally would have killed him, and so I had to wait for him to pass away. And I, I told my mother through the process. Mm -hmm. uh, was that difficult? It was. Um, as I get into in the book, I didn't have the best of family situations, not a horrific family right. circumstance, but I was not close to my mom. So it was, it was more difficult to tell others who were closer to me than my mom. But you internalized this for a very long time. Sure. It was 2010 when you reported this to police. That's right. And that's decades later, right? And that's yeah. unfortunately the, the circumstance we find ourselves in when we look at those who abuse children. Decades can go on before anyone gets yeah. to the position where they can come forward. Because uh, Graham James got away with it for a long time. He was still a very important hockey person right into the 90s, really, right? Yep. Until Sheldon came forward. Outside of court, when would have been the last time you would have encountered him or seen him? When I went away to Princeton, just before I went away to Princeton. Yeah. And uh, I, un unlike the others, I think Graham maintained an ongoing relationship with, with certain of the others. I think with me, Graham maybe realized that he dodged a bullet. I was never fully captive to Graham. It's not like I lived with Graham or was coached by Graham. Right. And I was different than the others in that I was the hockey player, but I was also a student. And Graham has justified what he did based upon the Romans and the Greeks and the ideals of, of what it was to be a man and boy love back then and yeah. 
the, the Roman and Greek ideal of, of mind and, and body. And I think, you know, look, Graham loved each and every one of us, and Graham has his thoughts about each and every one of us. Well, yeah, and I mean, he's he's accountable for what he did, but... He's not accountable. Uh, well, he, 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 should, he needs to be held he accountable. He needs to be held accountable. But is it your sense that... I mean, how how did he become this way? Is he... Oh, he's is just he, wired differently. Is he a victim himself, do you think? No, I, and... and I don't even want to start thinking about that. I think that the minute we start thinking that the monsters amongst us are themselves victims, we go down a very dark road that leads us to a very bad place yeah. with the best of intentions. I think it's that thought in exactly why Graham walks amongst us freely in Canada today. The system has the best of intentions of believing goodness resi resides within everyone. I resist that notion. I believe that there are monsters like Graham who deserve not to walk freely amongst us ever again. Did he have enablers? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's difficult because today in 2018, we're in a different world than we were back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, you know, we've, we've since had Seinfeld's, not that there's anything wrong with that. There was a stigma about homosexuality back then that there isn't now. I think people bent over backwards to give Graham the benefit of the doubt, suspecting that he may be gay and, and right. uh, lots of things. But Graham had enablers, and whether they knew or they were willfully blind to what was going on. There, there were and remain in the hockey community people who knew. Because we have come a long way in terms of um, being able to talk about these issues and acknowledging, you know, the impact on, on victims. But it seems like, I mean, the fact that Graham James is walking around a free man, it's one example. I mean, we have a long way to go. We do. And I, I, one of the most distressing things in my experience going through coming forward and, and let's leave aside the fact I didn't get an apology from Graham. I didn't get a conviction through the legal system. Right. I have encountered people from Graham's past who to this day remain contact with Graham, who believe Graham deserves a second chance and who remain friends with Graham. Really? People who remain active in the hockey community. And that's just not cool. Uh, that is, Beyond the pale, and, and look, part of me believes that I'm wrong not to forgive and to find in my heart forgiveness and understanding and acceptance, but I, I'm just not going to ever be able to do that. And as upset as I am at Graham, I get equally upset at these others. But they know, right? They know. They either know or they've made peace in their own minds to, 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 to not know. In terms of forgiveness, I mean, Graham hasn't asked for forgiveness. And I think you need to want it. I think you need to own up to what you did. Asking for forgiveness would usually follow some kind of an apology. Well, and this is where it was difficult to sit in the courtroom at Graham's sentencing back in March of, uh, I guess, 2013, uh, because Graham gave an apology, and he always does when he sits in these sentencing hearings. He apologizes. He reads an apology that he's written. And he apologizes effectively to the world. He apologizes to everyone in the hockey community. Again, in this Graham-centric universe, he, he believes that people care and want an apology from him. Graham liked to quote Shakespeare, and Graham liked to hold himself up as an, an academic expert. But, you know, Graham's apologies are nothing but tales told by an idiot, full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. So as you said at the outset, you, I mean, you wrote this book in a lot of ways for you, but what do you hope people get from it? Well, first, if uh, any victim were to come across it, I hope that they understand a couple of things. First, you don't have to be a celebrity to survive. And one of the problems we have today is that 
there's almost a, a cult of celebrity around books like this, uh, where to have a, a built-in audience for your story, you kind of mm -hmm. sort of have to have been someone of note to get your book published, and, and there is that. I, I wanted to be clear that you can be a nobody and still find places to get help and, and survive. Secondly, for adults who deal with kids, a couple of things. Uh, first, understand that even the seemingly strongest child can be groomed, and that uh, when a child is passive-aggressively acting out, uh, don't necessarily ask what's wrong with the child. Look more deeply into what's happening to the child. And that leads into my following uh, and, and final point is adults and parents out there who are dealing with children, don't be afraid to stick your nose in because if you suspect that something may be going wrong, no adult who is there for the right reason will object to being questioned or, or reviewed in terms of how they are dealing with the children. It's only the ones who have something to hide that will worry that you're sticking your nose in. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, Greg, uh, congrats on the book. And you know, hopefully it, it helps you with some healing and, and maybe some, some kind of closure. And really appreciate you coming in here today. Thanks so much for having me here. Today. All right, there you go. That's uh, Greg Gilhooly. The book is called I Am Nobody, Confronting the Sexually Abusive Coach Who Stole My Life. My name is Rob Breckenridge. This is Afternoons on 770 CHQR. We're back after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.